The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and it gives me great, great pleasure to welcome uh, to studio for the Thursday interview this week Tony Ward, the former Irish rugby international. Amanda hardly needs an introduction. Tony, it's good to see you, and thanks a million for coming into studio. Thanks, Kieran. Delighted to be here. Um, can I, there's so much we could talk about, but I, I, I do want to talk about something we've been covering quite a bit, understandably. It's been in the news since October 7th, and it's what's going on in, in Gaza. You were one of these. Um, sports people um, who signed this letter, uh, Irish Sport for Palestine, calling for a ceasefire. What, why did you sign that letter? Plain and simply, the the humanitarian aspect of it. I, I like we're all normal human beings. I'm at home every evening, and I'm watching these pictures on the on the television. And I have to be honest, I'm a coward. I'm turning them off. I can't watch them. They're just they're beyond comprehension that human beings can do this to other human beings. And in no way are any of us defending what happened on October 7th. That was appalling in itself. But now it's just genocide. It's, I, I really cannot believe that, that we're put on this earth and that people do this to each other. It's, it's, and and that's, that's the simple reason. There's no other reason in the wide world. And also, um, David Hickey was on to me, Dr. David, and David is, be, is behind it. And he's truly inspirational. And again, his motives are nothing but the best that... Like nobody that I know who's involved has any ulterior motive other than trying to get this thing stopped as soon as possible. Now, I'm not sure if it'll make one whit of difference our involvement, mm. but it's all we can do. So uh, I'm just delighted and I'm proud and privileged to be involved. Um, it, I mean, it's not the first time, and we might talk about it in a moment, where you would have kind of made public your principles um, alongside kind of your, your sporting ambitions. Has that always been important to you? That they exist side by side. Because some, some people would say, you know, you compartmentalise it and, you know, people don't come and watch me play rugby to know what I think about things and yeah. vice versa. That's a brilliant question. And you're, you're bang on the nail. When I go back, I went to college in Limerick. I was in the PE college, uh, the NCPE, as was called back in the 70s. And obviously as part of our study there, we covered many different areas. Um, and sport and politics would have been one of them. And But I did it because it was an exam and I had to do it, but I didn't pay any attention to it. And then a couple of years after I left college, I qualified in 78. And in 1980, I went out on the lines towards South Africa. And because no matter what sport you're involved in, and when you're that age, there's, there's no tomorrow for one thing. And you're just focused. It's tunnel vision, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you just want to be the best that you can be at what you're doing. So when I got the call to go out on the Lions Tour, which is the ultimate honour you can get in this part of the world in international rugby, because as you know, it's all the Mm. uh, uh, four countries combined. I didn't even think twice about it. I was on my bike and on the way out immediately because, you know, to play for the Lions and be part of it. And uh, honestly, I'm not exaggerating this. and, And this is where to answer your question, my whole attitude what's that, a Damascus moment? I don't know if that's an appropriate term. Mm. I don't know what you want to call it. But when I arrived out, Sid Miller, who sadly passed away recently, um, was our, a great rugby, rugby man. He was our manager on that tour, the Lions manager. And he met me in uh, Joburg Airport. It was called Jan Smuts Airport at that stage. And I remember uh, being with Sid, and rugby in South Africa is the be-all and end-all. And certainly back then in the yeah. apartheid days, even more so. So the amount of photographers and uh, 
interest in media interest was huge. So we were walking through the terminal building in the airport on the way out, obviously to get in a car to head to join up with the rest of the squad. And I saw up on the wall, and I'm not exaggerating this, I just saw White's Only Toilet. And it was one of those moments that kind of looked and, did I see that? You know? Yeah. And even though I'd heard about this, as I said, I'd studied it when I was in college, it went over my head. Like, this happened another planet, not yeah. on the one I was inhabiting. And from that moment, uh, on that tour, myself and uh, there was a scrum half on that tour with me, Colin Patterson, he, um, he was concerned as well. He'd been out there longer than I had at that stage. I went out after two weeks and then we were out for another eight or ten weeks because there were long tours back in those days. And we went out of our way to go and see things. And I could give you so many instances of seeing apartheid at its rawest and its ugliest. Like, I'll just give you one of yeah. many because I'd keep you here all day otherwise. We went to a hospital. There was Roger Young, who's a former Ireland scrum half. He was based in uh, South Africa. He had emigrated out there and we were in Cape Town. And I remember going along, Billy Beaumont was our captain and a few of the players we went along. I think Clive Woodward was there. There were a few of us. We went along to visit a hospital, as you did with all the things out there, you know, as a touring party to, to meet uh, kids and go to schools and all yeah. that sort of thing. So we went into the hospital in Cape Town. And again, that was the one, I, I put it almost on a par with the shock I got when I saw that sign in the toilet, when in in the hospital, and they were badly disabled kids, physically as well as mentally mm. and every other way, emotionally, not least of all. But when they were finished, they went back to separate areas. There was a black area and a white area. And like, I just could not get my head around it, yeah. that this was going on somewhere in the world that I was living in at the time. So I guess I became ultra sensitive on the back of it, not necessarily for the better in terms of my footballing career, but it just gave me a very different perspective on life. It's a long-winded answer no, it's to a good what answer. led me into um, getting involved with David in Palestine. Um, but that, that that is the background to it. Did it... Did that experience, did it sully the, the rugby playing side of that tour for you and your experience at the Lions? Um, with the Lions, probably not. Uh, because it was happening while we were there and there were so many experiences, good and bad, Yeah. Uh, on that tour. What, what it probably did, and a question I've often been asked over the years is, because I didn't go back, and yeah. you'll come on to that the, the following year. That's where I probably suffered on it. But... Um, and it's a funny one. If I ask myself the question, would I go back and would I have done the same? My answer is yes, because yeah. I was naive and young and ambitious. <laughs> but knowing what I know and what I saw, and then the following year, the Ireland tour arose, it was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. I was not going back. And the argument that I was given by the IRFU and by everybody in rugby authority was, well, if we don't go back to South Africa we're tearing down the bridges that we've built. Mm. That, that was their argument. But when I saw the importance of rugby in South Africa, that wasn't the case at all. They, they really needed international contact to survive, but they were doing it on their terms. The government I'm talking about, yeah. the apartheid system that was in place. Um, so they were dictating the terms. And we, in my opinion, were playing along with that, mm. we being the Irish rugby team. 
in travelling out there. What was the blowback then when you didn't go out the following year? Uh, when I didn't go out in 81, I, I, I'd like to think, and I'm probably, again, I'm using the word naive again, but that was me, like so many things I do different in life now if I could. South Africa, not South Africa, not being one of them. Um, the blowback was probably that it did damage my relationship, not with the players. We never had a discussion, any of the players afterwards, about the right to go or the right not yeah. to go. Um, but certainly with the IRFU, because uh, I won't say I was persona non grata, but I, um, there was this image of me that was very false, you know, that I was the, the, the bit of the, the George Best, as they used to say, of rugby in that era. You know, I was the, the glory boy and all this mm. stuff, which is so unfair and wrong. So it probably fed a little bit into that. Here's this guy doing his own thing and not, you know, towing the party line. Yeah. There were about four or five of us, as you probably know. Yeah. Massey Keane was another and Donald Spring. Well, Dick was head of the Labour Party at that stage. Kim Fitzgerald was ADC, I remember, to the president. And I t- Hugo McNeil was very brave. He made a really strong moral stand too because he was only a student in Trinity. I say only because it means he was young at yeah. the time to make, you know, as morally strong a decision as that. But yeah, it was it was all that um, combined at the time. They're probably in a rugby playing context. Didn't need it, but do I regret it? No. Yeah, not one little bit. I, I've I've heard you remark, and I've I've seen it written down about you as well, in in terms of your own quotes about yeah, you know, your own personality, um, and maybe a sense of kind of sensitivity that you would have had down through the years. How did that affect you then? On a personal level, when, you know, you can imagine somebody thick-skinned, I'm not going and I don't care what you say about me. Now, maybe you were telling people you don't care what they say about them, but behind the scenes, a sensitive person does care. There's a not coincidence that has only arisen recently. My dad died when I was very young. He, we lived in Leeds initially, uh, my mum and my dad and I. I'm a Leeds United fanatic to this day. I'm a mm. season ticket holder. I still go over every second week. Because I'm just passionate about football and and uh, and, and Le- Leeds in particular, but what a, because my dad's so young, he's buried in Leeds. Um, I grew up. I think that's where the insecurity comes from. I was an only child, so my mum had to bring me up, and we came back to Dublin, and we lived in Harl's Cross with uh, my mum's sisters, etc. So it was probably the insecurity of not having a paternal influence on my life, a father figure. Uh, when I look back at it now, you know, to try and answer yeah. that question as best I can. And I think that's where the sensitivity has come from. Probably been brought up by a house of women. You know, <laughs> it has positives, obviously. Yeah. But I think that, uh, I hope that doesn't sound <laughs> a terribly sexist comment, but I think that might have been a big factor in me thinking about things over and above the ordinary uh, yeah. as I was growing up. Yeah. Is that something you change about yourself or was there a strength in it as well? I don't want to sit on the fence and say yes and no. Um, I don't think so because I think at the end of the day, like, what matters more than anything? It's not the number of caps you have or the number of goals or points you score. It's um, it's living life, I think, and we're coming back to what we started with, mm. in the best way possible. And mine is according to my conscience. And I try to inform my conscience in the fairest way I can about most things and then make a decision. Perhaps at times... I was a little overly spontaneous in decisions I made, but um, there's aspects, yeah, 
I'd tweak. <laughs> but in general, no, I, I, I wouldn't change. It, it, wouldn't change it. I, I wonder, and maybe it's it's kind of, it's giving them too free a pass, but I wonder what you think. Uh, is it harder for players today to make that stand in the professional game when maybe you've got, and maybe you'd say it's the opposite because you've got, they've got the comfort maybe of kind of, uh, of some money in the bank. Um but, I, you know, I can understand why some of them might say, well, it's harder because we've got all these commercial interests around us and you've got all these voices in your ear saying, you can't do that. You'll, you'll annoy the sponsor. You'll annoy the person who you're a brand ambassador for. You'll annoy this person. You'll annoy that person. Yeah. Funny enough, we didn't get paid. A, I didn't get paid a penny for playing the game. <laughs> yeah. We didn't. Um, but we had that pressure as well. So yeah. You weren't. And it was simply like, oh, well, like... Okay, Ward's not towing the line. Drop him. We'll bring somebody else in. I'm not talking about because the Campbell Ward thing was the big thing. Ollie yeah. himself was the, the big rivalry at the time. But others would have come in, and there were others around Mickey Quinn, Paul Dean. There were other players around, and and Irish rugby has always been um, blessed in terms of the talent it's had. But yeah, since the game became professional, obviously. That said, it's a much different organisation now, the IRFU, mm. and it it's. I won't say it's player-led, it's not. But everybody, as I see it from the outside looking in, is singing off the same sheet and they're trying to get the best for Irish rugby on the field, off the field, administration, commercially, in every way possible. So they're all working in the same direction. If I had a criticism back then, it would be the politicking that went on within Irish rugby. Mm. And I'm talking about even down to selecting the team. And this might sound very basic. We had five selectors. Um, I think it was 2-2-1 was the breakdown. Two from uh, Ulster, two from Leinster. Uh, one from Munster and then there were two sub-selectors one of whom was a Connacht selector and the other was usually a Munster so you had seven guys selecting the team Yeah, not one of them was the coach so the coach was handed his team and he had no say in the team that's the type of thing that went on now you take that up to another level you have the IRFU meeting uh, monthly they used to meet the first Friday of every month back then and I know my name used to come up consistently with people around the country a guy from Limerick a guy from Galway bringing up a ward did this in the last month and ward did that in the last month because I had friends in the IRFU who were on those committees <laughs> yeah. and they used to come back and tell me look so and so has been doing this that's the sort of skullduggery mm. and nudge nudge wink wink that was Irish rugby back there it, it was awful you know when you look back that's all changed now and I believe for the better, uh, for everybody concerned, not least the players. Mm. Well, well, one of the other big changes in rugby then compared to now is around player welfare uh, and uh, players' health, concussions, head injury assessments and protocols and all in that regard. Um, have you a view as to kind of uh, the, a lot of the, these former players suing um Different unions and different associations now because yeah, of the injuries. Yeah, I'm suffering myself, uh, I have to say, and I have no doubts from rugby. I'll give you one very funny example quickly now in a moment. But I, I have suffered a lot of uh, concussion and um, uh, migraine over the years playing rugby, particularly after games. I remember playing one game very quickly. We are playing France in Lansdowne Road in the late 70s. And I remember I got a knock in the first half. They had a well-known wing forward back then, brilliant player called Jean-Pierre Reeve. He was a small little flanker with long blonde hair. 
but at the back of a of a, a rook in the first half, he caught me with his elbow on the side of the head. <laughs> Was it deliberate? I would, I would imagine so. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's not why I'm making this point. I was concussed and I was seeing, you know, like wobbly things. I couldn't see properly, couldn't focus. And I was the kicker and all that, you know, around that time. So at halftime, we had a doctor, a former rugby international as well, Mick Malloy, great man from Cork, played in the second row with Willie John McBride uh, back in the uh, early 70s. But Mick was the team doctor. And while we didn't have a HIA or anything like that then, he knew I was bad. So he took me at half time into the changing room because then you didn't go in. You stayed on the pitch and you had your little square of orange or whatever. Yeah. And you continued into the second half. Anyway, he took me in and did all the usual, how many fingers, what day is it? Yeah. How are we doing? What's going All that sort of stuff. And um, I came back out onto the pitch and I swear to God, this is not a word of a lie. I actually ran over to the French group. <laughs> And I was, which is an eternity, I was about 15 seconds there before I twigged it myself. Yeah. So it just shows you yeah. how bad I was yeah. know, at the time. So I think it's just a, a culmination of those things. As regards players suing it, I don't like it. I, I think there's an element of opportunism there. And I look each to their own. And, and again, I come back to conscience, yeah. answer your conscience. But I... I played the game because I wanted to do it. I knew the knocks that I was taking, what was there, as did all, you know, my comrades and players yeah. I played with and against. Um, so I, I find that a little hard to stomach, but look, you know, people have to do what they've got to do. I just don't follow the same line. Um, listen, I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Uh, before I let you go, uh, Six Nations is just around the corner. I mean, are you excited by the prospect? Do you still get excited? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Um, and, you know, after last year, winning the, the Grand Slam, yeah. I think Andy Farrell, I, I just, I love the way he operates. There's, and I come back to this point, I'm from a very working class area in Dublin, even though I went to a rugby playing school. Hence, I played rugby. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got the chance. Andy Farrell is from a rugby league background. And there's that down to earth. I, I just love it about him. And I think... The way he handles things, the way he brings guys in. Now, the whole thing, I just think, is from the right way. So, yeah, really excited, although we have a hell of a hard game to start next Friday, as you know. Yes. We're over in France for the In Marseille, yeah. In Marseille. That's going to be some night, some game, some tournament. Yeah, look forward to it as well. Listen, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million. Likewise, Kieran. Tony Ward, my guest this week for the Thursday interview. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy. With Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.